0: so good evening so I'd like to continue the kind of providing a framework for our practice and to I think it's always really important to remember why we're doing what we're doing and why or how what we're doing here fits into a larger schema of of practice and understanding and life and um, to continue to make those links between the minutiae of our everyday moment-to- moment -moment experience here which can seem very um, mm, mm, small or intricate or myopic (laughs) and uh, thread it into the the weave of of the scope of practice. So, uh, encapsulated very nicely by a cartoon that I like, where there's three captions, and it's called the history of man, man, mankind. In the first picture, there's a picture of a person. And um, in the second picture, the person's scratching their chin, saying, what the hell is happening here? And the third caption is, the end. So we're in the middle. <laughs> what the hell is happening here? So I think of the Buddha's teaching as a really great map and a resource and a guide to that middle section called life, called what the hell are we doing here? How do we make sense of life and ourselves and our mind? And how do we relate to this very interesting and challenging and beautiful changing world that we live in? How do we find peace and wisdom and clarity and in the midst of all that, right? Because as you can see, in the minutiae of your experience, may not be so easy to necessarily fathom that question out. There's a. Um, I'm not sure if this was a cartoon or where I saw this, but there's a story of these goldfish, two goldfish in a fish bowl, and I know two f- goldfish swimming in the wild if they ever do such a thing I don't know I've only seen them in goldfish bowls <laughs> but I think they probably come from somewhere wild originally and one's asking the other so what do you want in life what are you hoping for and and maybe they're swimming in the ocean or somewhere like that big lake and the, and the other one says you know I want it all I want the goldfish bowl I want the cover of gravel and a little castle and a <laughs> plastic plant. I want it all. <laughs> Which is kind of how we are. Right? We're looking for happiness in all the wrong places, or many of the wrong places, or many of the places that can't really provide lasting satisfaction. And in a way, the Buddha taught in response to that, he saw that people like himself wanted to be happy and were chasing many things that were guaranteed not to provide the satisfaction that they were really seeking. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> you know, we look for happiness in interesting places, and you know, many things can provide a certain level of satisfaction and meaning, but does it really? do what it is that we're looking for. So, you know, the Buddha had a, as I mentioned, I think in the first evening, similarly, you know, comfortable life, affluent life, and soon discovered that wasn't really going to do it. How does it, how did it help him deal with the existential challenge of being a human being knowing that we're going to age and get sick and die eventually how does that how do we resolve that quandary of being human being mortal and being vulnerable to many things out of our control and so through his own practice he discovered a um, um, path. He discovered a way of um, meeting and being in the world and meeting life as it is that no longer caused his own mental and emotional anguish. And so that's really what we're exploring here. The Buddha was sometimes known as the great physician and um, in that, like his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is what I'm going to explore tonight, um, is uh, a way of uh, understanding our condition in a way through a classic medical model, looking at the diagnosis of our condition, the cause, the um, uh, prognosis and the prescription. I like the reframing of this teaching as the four tasks. The Four Tasks, which uh, comes from uh, Stephen Batchelor's uh, understanding and translation of this teaching. And um, because from Stephen's perspective, who's a, I think, a marvelous Buddhist scholar, um, the Buddha wasn't teaching ontological truths. He was teaching a practical path, a pragmatic mm, way of action in the world not ultimate truths, as, as Four Noble Truths sound like. They're tasks to be undertaken. And so just to remind you of what these truths and tasks are, the first is to understand the human condition, the, the, the truth of suffering. That there is suffering in life, there is pain in life, there is dukkha is the Pali word, which means unsatisfactoriness and the task is to understand suffering really understand it be intimate close with it which is partly what we're doing here we're getting very close (laughs) to some dukkha and I'll talk about that and then we look at the cause of the dukkha that we experience and the, the cause is to be released the cause of our suffering is to be released what what adds to and exacerbates our pain, is to be released. And the third is the cessation of suffering. that The cessation of the cause of suffering is to be realized. And the fourth, the prescription, the path is to be cultivated, which is the Eightfold Path, which I'm not going to talk about tonight. So the Four Noble Truths or Tasks are kind of the, the good news teaching that's pointing to the the essential pain of the human condition and the way out of that dilemma or that struggle. And so through mindfulness, through the various practices that we're doing is one way of exploring and understanding that moment by moment. So I want to take a little look at the first truth to understand Dukkha, to understand unsatisfactoriness, which you have been noticing. <laughs> Many of you in leaps and bounds, you become PhDs in uh, personal and existential unsatisfactoriness. I had a perfect example, so we have these golf carts, as you've seen us wheeling around like little children. Um... <laughs> because where we sleep is about 10 minutes down the hill, and um, so sometimes we use those for various reasons, and so I got in mine tonight, because I wanted to get here on time, and to stay out of the rain, and so I'm driving, and as soon as I jerk the, the little golf cart, all the water from the roof <laughs> floods into <laughs> the... <laughs> I said, oh, great, I'm talking about dukkha, this is dukkha, this is unsatisfactory. I'm in a wagon that's supposed to protect me from the rain, and it's cold, and I get splashed. <laughs> Um, but in a, you know, in a, in a slightly more uh, serious way, the du- dukkha is that which is difficult to bear, that which is, that's the literal translation, difficult to bear, difficult to be with, difficult to hold, difficult to, to allow, right? And there's many things in life that are hard to bear, right? And many of you are sitting with them, or you've come with them, or you're living with, with real situations of health, of relational uh, struggle and parenting struggles and life struggles and that are hard to bear. Usually translated as suffering. Better translation, unsatisfactoriness. Like the golf cart, unsatisfactory. That there's always kind of a niggle. <coughs> so... Uh, referred to in the teachings dukkha generally as as, uh, old age sickness and death sorrow grief lamentation and despair it's kind of a cheerful subject (laughs) don't you think I like to think of it as the vulnerability of the human condition to be vulnerable is to be exposed to pain and suffering no matter how blessed your circumstances are there is anguish there is existential pain there's fear there's loss there's dread there's many things or i also translate it as it's hard to be human just the and um i know myself included that many people when they hear this they feel like oh finally someone's saying how it is I'm not trying to put a smile on it I'm not trying to put a smiley face and everything's all hunky-dory and you know you'll turn on the news and everyone's bright and shiny and you look on their Instagram and they also look in bright and shiny and right? it's like yes that might be true and also there's a lot that's not so easy personally socially globally and certainly in retreats, when I you know work with people one on one and in groups, I hear just I'm always amazed at the level of suffering. I read the, the sheets, the, the you fill in those forms with you know various experiences of what's going on now and physical, psychological ailments, past and present, and it's 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 a lot, it's a lot that each one of us carries. You know, there's a line that I forget who said this line. Um, be kind to every person because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And we never know, looking around, everyone looks sort of relatively healthy and okay. and right, But when you know, scratch beneath the surface, you know, mental health conditions, physical ailments, terminal diagnoses, loss of loved ones. Right. Very common, part of being human. So, but I think one of the things that we come up against a lot on retreat is um, is the, this, this rub uh, of, of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, that everything's sort of okay, but they just don't serve coffee, you know. <laughs> or, you know, I'm sort of comfortable, but I didn't bring my bench and nothing else kind of works. And I sort of am exhausted, but when I go to bed, I don't like the pillow and the Dang, just there's this this onth- this constant rub, you know. It's like it's coming here, and I'm I peel off all my layers, and then I then it gets then it gets freezing, or I bundle up, and then it's too hot, or you know, just this is kind of a little itch. Right, the Buddha called it this this slightly imperfect wheel, like if you on a bicycle, just a slightly little warped, or in a car when you when your alignments off, just that little hmm. Or getting, you know, getting a fancy new iPhone or something for Christmas or whatever and you can't figure the damn thing out. You can't get your th- things to sync or right. It's this shiniest, zappiest new toy, but it doesn't quite fully integrate with some other software and that's dukkha. right? And it follows us around all the time. So, uh, other ways that the Buddha framed dukkha is not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, losing what we have, separated from what we love. Also, very common experiences, right? Anybody get what they want all the time? (laughs) You wouldn't be here probably if you did. You'd be enjoying it. Right? Did you get the body that you wanted? Did anybody put an order in for the body that they wanted? That was going to get you know creaky and you know, pain and you know whatever else? What about your mind? Right? Do we order this mind that you know is endlessly distracted? Right? Do we ask for that? No. It just it's the circuitry we come in with. Do we want a mind that always looks to what's wrong? No. But that's often how we live. Do we, do we order a mind that, that catastrophizes about what's going to happen in the future? Right? That's suffering right there, right? <laughs> losing what we have. Or losing what we love. Or getting what we don't want. Losing what we have. What do we lose? We lose youth. Anybody notice? <laughs> we lose vitality. We lose loved ones. We lose our memory. Here's a poem for memory, here's a story for memory. If I can remember the poem. Uh, it's called Loss by Billy Elliot. No, Billy Collins. Billy Elliot's a great film, but it's a different person. <laughs> See, it's just like that <laughs> it just you know, Billy somebody, I don't know. <laughs> The name of the author is the first to go, see, followed uh, obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you've never read, never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain in a little little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planet, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the dress of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay, Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, nor even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It is floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an I, as far as you can recall, well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bike. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the name of a famous battle In a book on war, no wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. That's the dukkha of aging, right? We can laugh at it. It's important to laugh at it because it's just part of life, right? And we can, you know, hold it lightly, but it's true, We lose what we have. We lose many things. We lose love. We lose our peak meditation moments. We lose all of our beautiful peak moments because they dissolve like sand. We get separated from that which we love. What is it that you love that you are separated from? Some of you are separated from your country. I know people who can't return to their countries, who who can't be reunited with their families. There's millions of refugees who are separated from... Loved ones and their countries and whatnot. <coughs> One thing we most uh, mourn is the separation from our true nature, or from our goodness, our good-heartedness. Right? We are unable to access our, our true nature, our Buddha nature. So um, the list goes on. I could I could spend all night talking about dukkha. I won't because it will just thoroughly depress you. But um, uh, the Buddha also said there's there's three kinds of dukkha, or at least in the commentaries. And the first is dukkha dukkha, which is just the dukkha of having a body. You have to, you know, rest it and then you have to get it up and it needs to pee and then you need to feed it and then you need to bathe it, and then it's, you know, needs some medicine and then and then it needs to do all that again, and then, you know, it takes a nap because it's tired of just taking care of cleaning the teeth and um, just the dukkha of having to manage the body is, is a certain kind of dukkha. Mm-hmm. And then there's the dukkha of, of change, that everything is changing, which is what I've sort of spoken about. This is a cartoon from New Yorker, and there's a guy looking pretty sad at the bar, and the barman looking equally sad. And uh, the barman saying, God, I can't read it because I can't I need my different glasses to read the quote because the other thing that's changing is my eyesight. (laughs) All right, let's see if these glasses work. Okay, here goes. All right, I can see that. So the barman's saying, please understand, I can only, giving him a drink, please understand, I can offer you only the fleeting illusion of happiness. (laughs) So, So the dukkha of change, right? We're living in climate change. Talk about global dukkha, the dukkha of loss, the dukkha of forest fires, the dukkha of rising sea levels and, you know, tremendous flooding and hurricanes. And then the last is sankhara dukkha, that everything is conditioned, everything is interdependent, and therefore, to some degree, out of our control. Climate change being a good example, right? Or the political system, to some degree, being a good example so given all that none of that's new right news what's key in this practice in especially in these tasks one is not just to understand all of that to be intimate with that to be real about it to confront it not to hide it or drown it out with whatever substance or distraction or business that we do but to face it, because the only way to transform it is a deep understanding, understanding its nature, understanding how we relate to it, and more importantly, understand how we compound it, how we add to our distress by our reactivity. So Achan Cha, wonderful Thai meditation master, said, by running, towards suffer- by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering like going to Hawaii, right? Or going wherever it is you go, going to retreat. I'm going to get away from my suffering. Oh, I get to retreat and that's what shows up in the first meditation. You know, whatever it is I'm running from, right? Here it is, probably, quote, stronger. So how we meet these conditions, these struggles, these challenges, to some degree determines whether we suffer in relationship to them. There's a lot of pain in life physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, global pain. The suffering, the personal suffering in relationship is determined by how we're relating to these things to some degree. I'm going to explore that in this talk. As this equation goes, suffering equals pain times resistance. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Or, as Viktor Frankl says, it's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. Not the load that weighs us down. And you see this, you see people from the same circumstances, the same family, the same conditioning. One person's buried, and another person's, you know, resilient. How we carry the load, how we meet that. So, our practice. is one of turning towards, of leaning into, of facing and looking. Oh wh- What is it that's causing suffering? Where am I caught? Where am I struggling? And how am I, uh, may I be uh, adding to that, making it worse through denial, blame, judgment, anger, whatever it is that we uh, get caught up in. This is from Suzuki Roshi who wrote, You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. So I'm just, my um, partner's mother has just had heart surgery today. Three stints and I'm just feeling the tenderness of that. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So we practice here, right, sometimes for the minutia, what seems like not such a huge deal, but sometimes it's a big deal because we're learning to practice how to face the hard stuff, right? like being in the hospital with a loved one, things being out of your control, waiting for the diagnosis from the doctor. And that's where you bring your quality of presence, of kindness, of patience, of care. So, our practice is mm, primarily twofold. How do we hold the tenderness of being human with kindness, with compassion? Because that, I've been talking about this in groups a lot, the more that we can meet uh, these these difficulties with with the two wings of the bird, as it's talked about in this tradition, the wing of awareness, presence, and the wing of kindness or love, the more we can meet it, and the more we can hold it, and the more we can relate to it wisely. I can't think of two more important qualities. Right? And out of the mindfulness, as Suzuki Roshi was pointing to, comes equanimity, comes a steadiness, this this ballast to hold difficult experience. It doesn't make the difficult experience go away, but it allows us to find some peace in relationship to it, some some steadiness. So just to take a moment to think about how, how do you meet your difficulties? How do you meet your struggles, all the struggles of others? What qualities do you bring to bear? What has served you in the past? And how has your practice, if you've been practicing for a while, which some of you have, how has your practice served you? You know, the more I practice and the more I teach, You know, life is tenderizing and hopefully our heart becomes more tender and more tender becomes more responsive. You know, I I, you know, I, I hear myself a lot just hearing people's pain and just you know, just feeling that and I hear myself saying, Oh, sweetheart, like that's that's hard. That's hard. You know. That's hard to be with. Because it is. So meeting it tenderly, meeting it with awareness, sometimes meeting with a sense of humor, like we can't find our glasses because we're wearing them. Um, Meeting it with patience. Right, These conditions don't necessarily go away. There's not necessarily a happy ever after story. There's, There's a lot of spiritual delusory ideas about happy ever after. Well, you get enlightened, and then you'll be happy ever after. That's uh, not quite the case. <laughs> because we age, we get sick, and we lose loved ones, and we die. Right? It's not a romantic spiritual retirement. The, back, the Buddha had backache and trouble with his squabbling community a lot. Right? But he was able to be at peace in the midst of that that's that's the offering of these teachings okay so a light-hearted story for you so this is from this is one way of meeting uh, the dukkha this is a dukkha of parenting so some of you might have heard this story so uh, this man's in in this supermarket and he's watching this mother who has a young child in the shopping cart which is always like a setup for you know suffering as he, any parent will attest in the little girls you know wanting this and wanting that and you know first they go down the cookie aisle and uh and when finding out that she wasn't going to get any cookies she has a little you know a little argument with her mom and and uh the man's watching this and and here's the mother say now monica we just have half the aisles left to go through don't be upset it won't be long and they're wheeling around, they get to the candy aisle. It's like, oh, and when finding out there's no candy to be purchased, he has a little tantrum. And again, the mother says calmly, there, there, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll check out. Wheeling around, they get to the checkout. He happens to be standing in the next aisle. And of course, she wants to get this bubble gum and all kinds of other stuff that she wants. And again, on her finding out that she's not going to get any bubble gum, she bursts into tears. And the mother says patiently, there, Monica, we'll get through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then we'll go home, and we'll take a nice nap. And so they check out, the man follows her into the parking lot, and he he stops and he says, I couldn't help seeing how patient you were with little Monica, he said. (laughs) Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy, I'm Monica. So whenever you're in distress, you know, like, ring the bell, ring the bell. There, there, Monica. (laughs) There's only two more minutes, and then we'll get up and go have a nice nap. (laughs) Or whatever it is that feels confronting and difficult and painful. There, there. Breathe. This too shall pass. This too shall pass, right? This is how we, you know, soothe ourselves, comfort ourselves, work with our... Dukkha and distress and awareness, kindness, patience. So there's dukkha, and then there's what the Buddha spoke to the cause of dukkha. But the cause of dukkha, I I like to caveat the cause because there's a lot of dukkha in the world. There's global suffering, there's economic hardship, there's exploitation and racism and refugee crises, and you know, just one, you know horror after another from one perspective. And when the Buddha talks about ending suffering, we're looking at ending suffering in our own mind and heart, particularly our own mental, emotional suffering, which of course, we are part of the world, so that will ripple out. And the more that we do our inner work, it will have impact on the outer, but we're looking at the inner in this case. So the cause of suffering, he said, is tanha, which is a Pali word for thirst. Speaking of which, I'm a little thirsty, excuse me. Not that kind of thirst. This is not the cause of suffering. Tanha is this, the thirst is, you can feel the the graphic longing, craving, wanting, reaction, hunkering after something, right? This movement either towards or away from experience, and the reason that we've been focusing on Veda now, on this feeling tone, which seems so, you know, subtle and slight and elusive and like, who cares? Because that little sensation of the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is the seed from which all of this thirst, this want, this desire, this longing, this craving, grasping, attachment, and becoming Stems from. And if you don't believe me, which you shouldn't, you should look at your own experience. See when something's unpleasant, how that leads to an itch, to a disgruntlement, to a not wanting, to a rejection, to a hatred, to a. You know, and wars actually come out of that. Inner wars, outer wars. So. Um, so, so there's, and there's three different kinds of, um, three kind of primary movements. And the first is um, bhava-tana, no, bhava uh, just tana, which is the thirst for pleasant experience. Um, and you might notice this in yourself. Have you, been, have you been wanting, longing for any pleasurable experience while you've been here? Because coffee sounded good, or sex, or something that's not here the TV distraction, your gadgets, your phone. Right? A friend of mine uh, was on retreat, he was doing a six week retreat in the, co- in the in the winter in Bowery, Massachusetts. And he was having a, he was in the Duca doldrums, it was a kind of a long, hard retreat. And, uh, and he had this thought he's, he's a big junk food person. And he said, I need donuts. And the, the retreat center is three miles from the nearest town. And it was like, cold and rainy and sleety. And, and that seed, donuts, got to have donuts. That's going to do it. If I just have donuts, I'll be fine. The retreat will be work. If I have donuts, I've got to get donuts. <laughs> Off he went, three miles walking down <laughs> through the rain and the snow. Got his pack of six or 12 donuts. A big pack of donuts. And then a can of Coke, because why not? You know, Wash it down with a can of Coke. <laughs> And it's freezing cold, raining. Nowhere to sit, so he f- walks back to the little cemetery. Sitting in the cemetery, <laughs> and he downs all six donuts, swigs it down with a can of coke, and then feels sick. <laughs> <laughs> that is the illusion of pleasure, right? Sounds good, tastes good. Maybe one or two bites, and then, you know, then we, we cause we get ourselves sick. There's a, there's a cartoon where there's a person sitting in meditation in a dark room and there's a little light comes on in the corner. And the meditator's like, mm, what's that? Mm, looks good. Mm, I want it. I've got to have it. Oh, And he gets a... Neural. It falls over in bliss. And the next caption, Black, back in the darkness meditating. Little light comes on. Mm, what's that? Right? And on it goes, right? That's the wheel of samsara, right? That we keep looking for happiness, satisfaction. We're really looking for satisfaction and peace, but we look for it in the, in objects that, that are usually incapable of providing that, like donuts, <laughs> like you know. And of course, we're sold this this. Um, this, this thing, right? Oh, I found, I found, came across this ad recently. This was a fun one. Box of Kellogg's cornflakes ch- filled with chocolate. Sounds pretty good right now. In this crave, it says Kellogg's crave, chocolate filled cornflakes. You didn't know what you were missing, but now you do. <laughs> this is my favorite ad of all time. So there's a guy sitting in front of all of his stuff, like uh, uh, things a guy would want, might want, skis and scuba and kayak and surfboard and golf clubs and dog and bike and computer and a whole bunch of other stuff. And he's meditating like this because that's how people meditate in the advertising industry for some reason. It's very tired. It's good for your biceps, but it's very tiring. (laughs) (coughs) And he says, Spence has put a little twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says you've got to be one, you've got to have one of everything. That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. (laughs) So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, go off in pursuit of enlightenment, and and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. (laughs) So... You thought peace was here, but it's actually in Ford Motor Company. <laughs> just saying. <clears throat> <clears throat> so, you know, we laugh, but we do this all the time. How, many, how much time have you spent fantasizing about something, this retreat? Wanting something, longing something, right? fantasizing, planning it, scheming it. right? Probably hours, right, if you add it up. A lot of hours wanting, planning, desiring, right? very natural, very human, right? no need to judge that. But if it worked, if, that's, if, that, if that seeking worked, we wouldn't be here. Right? It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Why does it leave us dissatisfied? Where are your best experiences right now? The peak things, you had the most juiciest, fun, crazy, great thing you ever had. Where is it? It's gone. All these amazing things end. Doesn't undermine how lovely and wonderful they were, but they end. They leave us kind of unsatisfied. This is dukkha, this is the dissatisfaction, that however wonderful they were, there's a little rub. Because no matter how great they are, they pass. Even the most blissful peak meditation experience you've ever had that you spend, you know, Joseph Goldstein had some amazing meditation experience. He's a teacher in this tradition in India. Got called back to America for a family thing. He went back. He spent two years trying to get back to that state. Two years. He says, don't do that. I did that. I'm saving you your trouble. Don't try it doesn't work you can't get back there the very grasping for the state precludes the state from arising that you were seeking the very state that you experienced partly arose because there was no grasping in the first place my teacher in India Punjaji used to say uh, the thief of peace is the desire for the transient the thief of peace is the desire for the transient so there's the thirst for, for sensory ex- for sensory pleasure right? and all the sensory pleasures that we can have and again this is not to say we can't enjoy sense pleasure why not beautiful strawberries right? many sensory pleasures here in nature and right? but not to seek and and put all our eggs in the basket of thinking they'll fulfill so bhavatana is the craving to become somebody someone this movement which is really around the craving of the self, of the identity. Right? Wanting to be someone, wanting to be more spiritual, wanting to get ahead, wanting to be seen, wanting to be recognized. And on the spiritual path, it manifests as wanting to be further along than I am. <laughs> if you're on a path, where do you want to be? Well, you don't want to be here, you want to be over there. Right? It creates this sense of longing and deficiency of not enough and I need to be further on. Right? Which is a complete setup for pain, because you can't be any further than where you are. Right? But the longing creates a lot of unsatisfactoriness. Or just wanting not liking ourselves, or wanting to be somebody different. A great line from Lily Tomlin, she said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. <laughs> <laughs> Or this is from Achan a great uh, monastic teacher. Craving to be something is not a decision, it's a reflex. The thirst to be something keeps us reaching out for what isn't here. And so we lose the inner balance that allows us to discern a here and now fulfillment in ourselves. And so the third form of tana, vibhava tana is the desire to uh, remove oneself, to get away from, guess what, what are we mo- running away from? Suffering. Well that, but a more subtle part of suffering, which is unpleasant experience. Right? We move towards the pleasant, because we want it, because it's pleasurable, and we avoid the unpleasant. Fear, checking out, repression, distraction, or lashing out, right? basically wanting to avoid or eradicate the object of, of unpleasantness. Right? So like when you get that little, little twinge of knee pain or back pain that your whatever old injuries were resurfacing. what do we want to do? Like Dawn said yesterday, we want to play whack-a-mole and just whack it away. Right? We don't want to go, oh, pain, welcome, my old friend. Let come, let me feel into you. Let me sense and love you and hold you and see your changing nature. No, just, I hate you, go away. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm staying in this room. and I'm not used to staying in this room. And it has this bed with these sort of like wings on the bed at the end. And I, I've I literally got these bruises in my <laughs> thighs because I'm, I see the mattress and I'm sort of, you know, spatially walking around the mattress and there's this thing sticking out and I whack it. <laughs> it really hurts, especially because it's now hitting bruises. <laughs> and Mr. Mindfulness, of course, wins the day. And um, uh, that's what I say to my judge who's saying, "Tut Mr. Mindfulness, I say, yes, Mr. Mindfulness, here he is. And if this flash of, of anger, it's, like, oh, it's not like, oh, pain, welcome, unpleasantness, unpleasantness. <laughs> no, it's like, oh, God, I can't believe I just did that. And then I had more pain by <laughs> judging myself for not seeing it. Anyhow, so, the moving away from the unpleasant. And of course, this is actually a better place, not a better place, it's an easier place to study the movement of, gras- of grasping. When we're desiring something pleasurable, we fixate on the pleasant characteristics of it. And that's why we want it. For example, we have this thing called Vipassana romance. right? Maybe you've seen someone here that looks kind of cute or someone in the other retreat who looks kind of cute. And um, w- looking through the lens of grasping, all we see is the pleasant characteristics. The beautiful cheekbones or whatever it is that does it for us. We don't see the we don't see the person at all except through the lens of our desire, right? Which is a distorted perception, which is why it keeps fueling the grasping, because all we see is the fixation on the pleasant. We don't actually get this person as a human being that has, you know, backache and has needs and what no, we just see what we what we like. And then we we have this whole fantasy, and we, you know, they're on the other retreat. Maybe I'll switch retreats, or maybe I'll find them in lunch. Maybe I'll stand beside them, and you know, who knows what will happen. And (laughs) so, um, so, so we don't see we don't see how caught up we are because we're fixated on the pleasant object. With aversion, with with the unpleasant, it's very obvious because it jars us. Oh, you know, cold back pain, right, sadness, right? It's it, it grabs our attention and it's unpleasant. And then the reaction is also unpleasant. Ugh, don't want this, don't like this, want it to go away, feel victimized. So we can actually study this process and see how that very reactivity massively ex- exacerbates what was just an unpleasant experience. So for example, Maybe you you know, you do have some physical discomfort in the meditation. Maybe it starts right when you sit down. You have a little knee twinge, and it's just a twinge. It's just a tingling. It's just a, st- a piercing, stabbing, searing sensation. <laughs> but it's still just, you know, it's a prickly thing. It's not the end of the world. But the mind, oh my God, this is horrible! I'm going to be able, i need a wheelchair to get out of here. <laughs> my meditation career is ruined. It's just disaster. I'm leaving. The re- That's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of reactivity. And I'm exaggerating, of course. But <clears throat> so notice this movement to to either strike out against the object, to want to get rid of it, hating it, rejecting it. All this, this tendency to just avoid and, and distract and space out. Uh-huh. And, of course, things on retreat get exaggerated. So, you know, we don't really care how loud someone breathes. You know, in life, we don't even notice if anyone's breathing, let alone the volume. But if someone's, you know, shuffling a lot, like someone has, as one, my, one of my friends says, swishy pants. <laughs> We know about Swishy Pants, because if they come in late, we're listening to Swishy Pants moving in and out, right? I mean, come on, it's not a big deal, but on retreat, when you, it's all you've got to do is focus on sitting in silence, and then Swishy Pants comes in, <laughs> you're like, I want to kill them. <laughs> I mean, writing to Spirit Rock, banning old nylon pants, and how could they let people come in with these unsuitable attire, and this is called yogi mind just in case yogi mind is when we exaggerate the reality of something because because our our world gets very small here right but it's also an indication of what our mind does right and what we do here we do out there except on a larger scale and we're not we're not usually tracking it so as petty as it is here it's very insightful because we see how the mind moves how when we lack mindfulness when we lack equanimity the slightest thing can trigger a wave and if we're not mindful if we weren't in silence and on a retreat that comes out as verbal reaction as as some kind of action some email something that can cause a lot of harm right so just some key points about, about this movement, this grasping tanha. Right? So desires are endless, not a problem in themselves. We have millions of thoughts, millions of desires. I want this, I want that. I don't like this. Lots of preferences. Not a problem in themselves. The problem comes when we s- seize upon them and demand that they happen. They have to turn the heat down. This person has to do what I want them to do. When we demand our body be a certain way, right? when we fixate on the desire, then becomes an attachment, it becomes a compulsion, and it becomes a source of suffering. And when we get caught up in these desires and aversions, it precludes the very peace that we're seeking. Right? As, soon as, we, we get, as soon as we seize upon something that we want, we no longer have access to the very peace that we're seeking so watch that watch that when a desire arises how it robs you from the very well-being and f- sense of completion because as soon as you want something there's a sense of incompleteness and I won't rest until I have it because I feel deficient until I get it that person that experience that object so it makes us unsatisfied with what's here this is how Rumi puts it he says how long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones let the world go holding it we never know ourselves never are airborne so we fill our pockets with dirt and stones right? trying to fulfill that which is already whole but we've lost touch with that because we believe we need something from the outside and of course our world is selling us that every moment of every day so no wonder we feel insufficient unless we have the latest you know fill in the blanks for you and of course that comes on to into our meditation practice. How many of you spend time subtly manipulating your experience to have a pleasurable meditation, or to have a blissful meditation, or to have a peak moment in meditation? Also very human, but that's not what the practice is about. The practice is about being present to whatever moment is here, beautiful, blissful, or sad, or anything in between. And just one other caveat: that th- in the tradition we make the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome desire. There are many wholesome desires. Your wholesome, to your the desi- wholesome desire is that which is onward leading, that leads to peace and well-being and compassion and freedom. Your desire to come here is an expression of a wholesome desire because it's going to serve your well-being. And in a wholesome desire. Um, you know, well, many of those. You know, if your desire to come here was just to look good and be cool and tell everybody back at the office, eh? Not so helpful. <laughs> so, just some things about working with this. 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 So, the, so the Buddha said that the 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 task of this truth is, is to is to release the cause of suffering, release the grasping, the fixation, the wanting, the demand, the attachment, right? And of course we know this very much in intimate relationship, right? When grasping and attachment and demand happens from your beloved <laughs> or you to them, doesn't go so well, right? Very easy to see in relationship. Hard to actually live without that, but. So um, we wanna look at our attitude and the way we relate to these this tendency. And so, really, the greatest key we have is mindfulness. Because, as Dorm was pointing to earlier, the as soon as we see the fixation, the grasping, the wanting, we're no longer as caught. Right? As soon as we see, oh my god, I'm just lost in this fantasy for the fifteenth time this week. Oh, fantasizing. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm. You know, that's something that may happen after the treat. Let it go. Right, just the seeing of it, we disengage from the strength of it. Secondly, we once we've seen it, we want to feel it. Feel and get to know the, the fixation. What does it feel like to feel longing? Or to feel lust? Or to feel demand? Does it, fe- does it feel spacious and pleasant and expansive? Or does it feel gripping, intense, or uh you know tunnel vision compressed <coughs> so you feel the energy it's just movement whatever it is desire longing wanting resistance reactivity fear can you let yourself feel this to understand them and use this phrase it's like this a longing is like this wanting is like this fantasizing about Lunch or f- food or sex, or my partner. Oh, longing is like this. It feels like this. It comes through the mind like this. All right. To feel the transient nature of it. However strong a peak fixation is, it doesn't nothing lasts that long, have you noticed? You're really consumed with something in rage, in desire, in bliss, you know? lasts for a while. Very quickly it passes. <clears throat> and with grasping particularly, and I like to use an analogy here. Let me see if I've got enough. Um, it's very easy to mis- misconstrue some of these teachings. And so sometimes what we hear is, oh, well, I shouldn't want anything. I shouldn't grasp any. I shouldn't. I shouldn't, um, you know. And if I if I am wanting something or I have something, and this is this is the grasping, this is the object. Well, all that's bad, so I should just get rid of the whole thing. No, like you know, here's the flower, and here's the grasping that we're, str- we're strangling the flower because we want it so much, or the person. Right? No, we're not saying get rid of the person or the flower. We just release the object from our grasping. Mm-hmm. As Talopa, a uh, great Indian uh, teacher, said, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our inner attachments to them. It's not the outer objects, people, things, experiences that bind us, but our inner attachment to them. And lastly, notice the belief system. If only I get this thing, if only I get rid of this thing, I'll be happy. Okay? Notice the view that's fueling the grasping, wanting, longing, desire, hatred, etc. If only this happens or if only this doesn't happen, I'll be happy. So, it's already been almost an hour and I'm only through the first two truths. So, (laughs) settle in people. No, I'm just kidding. um, we're skipping the fourth I'll get to that another time and I'll just touch on the third because it's um, well so the third this is the good news of the practice is that cessation of suffering is possible cessation of the cause of suffering is possible it is possible to to cease and release fixation to cease and release and let go of the grasping, wanting, longing, meddling mind. And if this wasn't actually true, we would all be crazy in this moment. Because if there was no release in our moment-to-moment experience, if all, if we were just permanently fi- caught up in fixation, wanting and resisting, we'd, it would go crazy. We actually have many, many moments in the day when neither grasping, nor resistance, nor delusion is happening. And we want to pay attention to those. We want it. It's very important in this teaching to pay attention to the presence and the absence of. Presence of wanting and the absence of wanting. The presence of resistance and the absence of resistance. Acham Buddhadasa, who is also another great Thai forest master, called this... These moments where we're free from tha- tha- those forces, he called the moments of nibbana. Moments where the mind is not in contention with reality, not in contention with experience. And you know this in experience. You, you're sitting in meditation, and you're just at ease, just quiet. You know, maybe someone's doing something that's annoying, doesn't bother you, and you kind of hear the lunch bell, and say, so "Oh, that would be nice." But you just just okay, just at ease. Right? Pay attention to these moments of freedom where you're not caught up in being in contention with the moment, in contention with yourself, in contention with another, or in contention with life. And there are many moments that we have, and the, with the reason it's important to pay attention to these is because it's. It, it's, a, it's the doorways into, you know, what the Buddha's pointing to, which is Nirvana, which is freedom from all reactivity. <coughs> it's the not needing experience to be different than it is. You know, maybe you're sitting in your body, you're feeling your, your knees are aching. And your back, your shoulders are a little sore. But there's a fundamental okayness. Oh, that's just how it is. The body's a little sore, a little achy. Oh, I'm in nursing, I'm a little sleepy. Oh, and it's sleepiness is like this. And there's no reactivity, there's no blaming or complaining. It's just, oh, wave of sleepiness. Let me just have a softer attention with the lack of energy. You know, go outside, walking down the hill, it starts raining. Oh, wetness is like this. Didn't bring my umbrella. Oh, well, I'll survive. Walk to the dining room, dry off. It's just not a big deal. There's a certain ease, certain inner freedom, inner spaciousness, not needing something to happen to fulfill you or make you happy because there's a kind of an inner contentment, an inner ease, an inner well-being. And so, to notice this and to notice how... um, even when you get caught in some fixation, how that very fixation can actually also lead to cessation. And maybe you're, you know, you're noticing a longing, a desire, a reaction, and you feel it for a while, and you, you're, you're mindful and just present. You feel it rise, you feel the thoughts and the feelings and the energy, and, and you just watch it, and you see it come, and it's strong. You don't buy into it, you don't judge it, and it just passes away. And as it passes away, it's like, oh, and there's peace in it passing away. Okay. This is Achen um, uh, Samedo, another great Thai forest meditation teacher. He says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, which I just talked about this path process of cessation, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience we have to open our minds to suffering because it's an embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we're suffering and we can go to the actual experience that's present, open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allow it to be what it is, means we're patient and we bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom and despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that these conditions cease, rather than we needing to run away from them. Right? This is the, the, the courage and the wisdom of practice. We learn to stand to sit in the fire of experience. Pleasant, painful, neutral, strong, weak, intense, beautiful, hard, painful, and we see all things pass into cessation. All things come and go, and we can stay still. It's a beautiful uh, teaching from Achan Chah who says, "You know, all of our practices are different, um, but as we continue um, our, pract- our, our mind, uh, we'll see many things come and go." And he says, uh, "Our mind becomes like a clear forest pool." Many beautiful animals will come and drink at the pool, but our mind is still. He said, this is the, this is the happiness of the Buddha. And we get to f- find that still point, that refuge in awareness that, that allows us to unhook from this painful engagement with being in contention, contention reaction, aversion, grasping to life and the things in life. So we see that through being with experience, we, we experience that through letting go of the fixation, the reaction, the judgment, the grasping. But mostly through our practice, it comes through being with and letting be, letting experience and ourselves and our minds and our hearts and our bodies be as they are, meeting them as they are, with awareness, with kindness, with wisdom, with equanimity. And we all have the capacity to do this. As the Buddha said, if I didn't think this was possible, if I didn't think it was possible for you to find freedom from suffering, I wouldn't tell you to do so. So let's sit together just for a moment. In fact, let's just, just stay in whatever posture you're in. Don't need to get into a sitting, sitting posture. And but close your eyes, and I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions. Is there anything that's missing right now? Is there anything that you're resisting? Or grasping after in this moment. What may you be holding on to that causes suffering? And what would support you to release, to be at ease, to be at peace with what is? And if you look to your immediate experience, is there anything missing, anything lacking? anything, a problem. So thank you for your kind attention. So we'll have some walking for 20 minutes. So again, I ran over, so um, when you hear the bell, uh, which will be at 10 to 9. Just wait 5 or 10 minutes and come in at 9 o'clock for the sitting. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash Donate.